BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we look at what a landmark union victory at an Amazon warehouse in New York City means for organized labor. The union that organized warehouse workers at JFK 8 was not a traditional labor union with professional organizers. It was independent and made up of current and former Amazon workers who were financed by GoFundMe campaigns. We'll look at the impact of their win and other successful recent independent union drives and what lessons they hold for big, wealthy, more established unions. That's next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This month, a group of current and former Amazon warehouse workers on Staten Island managed to pull off what had eluded big established labor groups in the U.S., a successful union drive at Amazon, one of the most powerful companies in the world. The win is being hailed as a massive opportunity for organized labor and an eye-opener for traditional labor unions. And joining me now to talk more about this is Kim Kelly, a journalist and author, author of the book Fight Like Hell, The Untold Story of American Labor that will be out later this month. Kim Kelly, so glad to have you on. Thank you so much for having me and for hosting this conversation. It's so important right now. Thank you. Really appreciate you being here. And Noam Scheiber is with us, a reporter for The New York Times. Noam Scheiber, thanks so much for being with us as well. Sure. Yeah, happy to be here. So Noam, let me start with you. Can you tell us the story of this unlikely independent union organizing victory on Staten Island? Who initiated it? How did they do it? Sure. Yeah. So um, this dates back at least till um, March of 2020, when the pandemic was descending on all of the United States, but certainly um, frontline workers like warehouse workers at Amazon were were right, you know, on the front lines of, of this uh, pandemic. Um, there were uh, apparent upticks in um, in COVID cases in this Amazon warehouse on Staten Island. And some of the workers were starting to notice it. Many were starting to get sick and they were all getting very nervous and anxious about it. Um, at that point, you had a, a guy named Chris Smalls um, who had worked at Amazon for a number of years and had been promoted to um, a kind of low level supervisory position. Um, so not officially in management, but above the, what they call the tier one um, kind of frontline employees. Um, and Chris was um, kind of walking around his area of the warehouse 
he noticed um, a, a colleague that looked terrible. You know, she had bloodshot eyes and um, just seemed really listless and, and feverish. Um, you know, everyone was starting to think about what symptoms like that could mean. He told her, you really got to go home. This, this, this looks bad. She went home a few days later, turned out she tested positive for COVID. At that point, he, like other coworkers there, were really um, anxious about the possibility that COVID was spreading rapidly in the warehouse. He went to talk to managers of the warehouse. He found them to be pretty non-responsive. His big ask was, we need you to shut this place down for two weeks, clean it, you know, let the incubation period run its course. He felt like he got nowhere, so he called a, a walkout, and that walkout happened in late March. Um, it wasn't a huge walkout. There were a handful of workers, but you know nothing that shut down the facility. But Amazon responded um, very aggressively. They responded by firing him. Um, they say it was because they had told him to go home and quarantine, and he broke that quarantine. Whatever the case, he was fired. Uh, he took that very personally, and he began thinking that he should do something about it. Um, mm. His initial impulse was to do something like form uh, an organization of uh, uh, frontline workers. He called it the Congress of Essential Workers. Um, that over time evolved into deciding to try to form a union. Um, I think that the seed of that was planted when he saw Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, trying to unionize. Uh, he and a good friend of his, Derek Palmer, who also works at the warehouse, drove down there, took a look at what was going on and thought, hmm, this union thing could work. But instead of doing it through a traditional union, um, they decided to do it on their own as an independent union. They began organizing their colleagues. Um, he just hung out at the bus stop across the street from the warehouse uh, at that Amazon on Staten Island. He did it day in and day out. They gradually recruited more workers to the effort. They got a few lucky breaks along the way, um, which we can discuss, um, one of which was a nationwide settlement between the NLRB and Amazon that allowed them access to coworkers inside the facility uh, in a break room uh, was a huge boost to their organizing efforts. And eventually through um, through kind of sheer determination um, and a few other things, you know, probably some overreaching on the part of Amazon, um, they were able to pull this thing off. Yeah, I remember he described it as them starting with nothing but two tables, two chairs and a tent. And then he was able to raise or he and Derek Palmer and a couple of others were able to raise $120,000 through GoFundMe. But how did Amazon push back? And how did how much did Amazon spend? So um, we don't know exactly how much uh, how much Amazon spent. Um, it's safe to say it was in the millions. Um, uh, employers only have to release their spending on outside um, consultants, and they only have to do that. Uh, the year after they actually do the spending. So we got Amazon spending for last year, just a few days ago, and that was $4.3 million. And again, that's just for outside consultants, not for you know spending on additional HR people, not for spending on literature or surveys that they may be producing. So clearly um, it was in the millions of dollars. Um, and as you say, um, the Amazon labor union, um, uh, they um, they raised about $120,000 through a few GoFundMe appeals. It was really a bare bones operation, um, and um, and uh, but it proved that uh, you know the kind of organic model was very compelling. I think there was a few key moments. One of which was um, when Mr. Smalls was arrested uh, in late February after delivering some food. Uh, to coworkers, uh, Amazon called the police on Staten Island. They said that he was trespassing. He was arrested, and two current Amazon workers who are involved in the organizing effort or were involved at the time um, were arrested as well. Um, workers there have told us that that was a real galvanizing moment. It was mm. this 
this moment that was seen as a real overreach on the part of Amazon. And so it, it definitely seemed to add some momentum and kind of um, pull the fence sitters over to supporting the union. Yeah, Kim Kelly, Noam is describing a lot of the things that went right for them against the odds. But what else do you think they got right? What do you think was the secret to their success? Honestly, and this is something that really came through on a, a call that um, that was held last night. Uh, the emergency, uh, trying to remember the organization's name, terrible. But there's a call last night with uh, several of the organizers and Bernie Sanders where they were very open about what they did and what tactics they used. And the most basic thing was that they just talked to other workers. They were very human. They were patient. They shared their own personal stories. One of the main organizers was a young mother, and that was something she used to connect to folks. Another one is 45, a little bit older, and she was able to bridge a generational gap. It really seems like it just came down to the workers realizing, okay, we need to do something. We need to do something fast, and we need to find out how to get our coworkers to trust us. And it was very difficult for Amazon to counteract that kind of organizing because you cannot third party a organization that is made up of people's coworkers, right? An outside organization did not come in. It was just workers at this place that realized they need to do something and started talking to their coworkers about it. It's very basic, but it worked. Yeah. And Kim, you covered the attempt to unionize in Bessemer, Alabama. And so was that just not happening very much there with it being organized by a, a much bigger established traditional union, the Retail Workers Union? Well, there are, so there are two different organizing campaigns, right? And the first one, we have to bear in mind that was happening in early 2020 when it was impossible and unsafe for people to have the barbecues and the meetings and the, the house visits and the door knocking. All of that person-to-person interaction that so much successful union organizing is built around was not possible because of the pandemic. It was before we had vaccines. Things were very bad. People in that warehouse were getting sick. It was, it was the context was very different. And I think the organizers that first time around did as much as they could, but it was hard to get past those roadblocks. And the second time around, I think there was a lot of organizer to organizer, person to person interaction for sure. It, the Amazon just had a little bit more ammunition in that they're able to go after the union, go after union leaders. They're able to pull this third party uh, nonsense and try to, to force a wedge between the workers and the union, which obviously the workers are the union. But when you're interacting with a workforce that doesn't necessarily have that kind of institutional generational knowledge because the anti-union state of affairs in states like Alabama, it's a little bit harder. It's a harder hill to climb. And I think it's pretty incredible that they're able to achieve what they did. But it's the circumstances were just a little different. Yes. And uh, well, Noam Scheiber, hearing Kim Kelly talk about they weren't Amazon wasn't able to pull the third party language. That really is a big part of it. Right. In terms of employers fighting back, calling the union that's coming in outsiders. No question. Yeah, this is a, a an anti-union playbook that's been developed. There's been, you know, literally an industry that's grown up in the past 30, 40 years um, that employers retain to help defend themselves, you know, in their eyes uh, against unions and uh, identifying the union as this kind of interloping outside party. It's just really after workers 
uh, you know, kind of skimming worker salaries and fattening their coffers. That's that's like a, a real cornerstone of of the uh, of the kind of response of employers to union campaigns. And as Kim said, um, I think this probably was somewhat effective in Bessemer, though the union certainly got very close um, in this rerun election this year versus their initial loss last year. But at the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island, it really did seem to fall flat. I, you know, I talked to a number of workers who are organizers there, and you know, they would get out of these meetings where the consultants and the HR people would be going on about how the union is an outside third party. And then someone, you know, another worker who was not involved in the organizing would see one of the organizers just kind of hang out at their workstation and they would have their union t-shirt on or their union pin on. And they would almost be surprised and they would sort of approach them and say, hey, you, you work here? And, you know, and they would say, yeah, we work here. It's the employees who are trying to organize this place and would get into this conversation about, you know, how um, you know who's actually in charge of the Amazon labor union, and it turned out that it was their coworkers and not an outside party. And I think that you know the kind of gap between what Amazon was saying about outsiders and who was actually running the campaign um, really resonated pretty broadly with that workforce there. Yeah, but as you say, Kim Kelly, the people at Bessemer were really able to accomplish a lot. Do you feel like this victory at Staten Island uh, was built in part on? Uh, efforts in Bessemer, meaning that it kind of helped propel them to victory a little bit in terms of lessons learned down there. I mean, someone always has to be the first, right? The workers <laughs> in Bessemer were the first to try, and the workers in Amazon uh, in Staten Island were the first ones to win. Like it's all connected. I know that Chris Smalls came down and visited the workers in Bessemer earlier on in the campaign, and I know they interacted and probably shared some tips. And you know, he took that back. And vice versa. I think that it's it's certainly connected, and I I don't think that you can look at one or get excited about one without getting excited about the other. I think <laughs> it's all one struggle. We're analyzing the Amazon labor union victory in New York City with Kim Kelly, a journalist and author, and Noam Scheiber, reporter for the New York Times. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions about the Amazon labor union win or your reaction to it? And would also love to know, have you thought about or experienced unions in the U.S.? What do you think of them? 866-733-6786 is the number to join the conversation. 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Earlier this month, workers at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island voted to form the first union in company history. So could Amazon labor union success as a new independent union contribute to a new playbook for traditional established labor groups? We're talking with Kim Kelly, a journalist and author of the book Fight Like Hell, the untold story of American labor out later this month. And Noam Scheiber is with us, a reporter for the New York Times. You, our listeners, are invited to join with your questions, comments, reactions to the first Amazon labor union, or also just to share your experience of labor unions and your opinion of unions and where they come from and whether or not it's changing. 866-733-6786, the number. Email address forum at kqed.org. Get in touch online at Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. So as we definitely give respect where respect is due to the workers and also to the retail, wholesale, and department store union that worked to organize workers in Bessemer, Alabama, um, in the face of this victory in Staten Island. One of the other things, though, that we do want to talk about with you, Noam Scheiber, is the piece that you wrote really looking at whether or not this Amazon workers' victory in Staten Island is a lesson for organized labor. Can you talk a little bit about what you say is happening among sort of established organized labor, which is really looking at their own playbook and whether or not they need to make adjustments? Yeah, I think there is a conversation that's been going on for a few years now, and certainly the Amazon Labor Union victory in Staten Island uh, has accelerated that conversation. And it's just kind of theories of how you organize workers. Um, You know, there are a variety of theories with many nuances, but I think that the biggest dichotomy is a kind of top-down approach where you have a lot of professional organizers. Um, you have, you know, PR consultants that you hire to get the word out. Um, you have opposition research, a, a kind of whole industry that um, that intervenes and tries to move the ball forward. Um, you know, we've seen um, uh, different models of that, different approaches to that. Um, and, um, you know, I think in, in the best cases, the best examples of that, the that's not the only thing that's going on. It's that you try to kind of marry um, this sort of um, professional staff uh, and, you know, the professional organizers and the professional PR people with a real organic uh, organize, organization of workers on the bottom. You know, I think uh, SIU, for example, has tried to do that with the fight for 15, um, pushing for higher wages in the fast food sector, pushing for unions. Um, and, you know, I think um, I think that model has, has uh, reached some dividends. Um, clearly, uh, it's resulted in higher wages for fast food workers across the country. Um, there is a bill in California that just passed the assembly there. Um, that would regulate working conditions and wages in the fast food sector. And I think that's, you know, clearly uh, partly a result of the Fiber 15. So I think that's that's kind of one model, and that's sort of the best version of that model. Um, and then, you know, the alternative model is really to kind of have the professionals step back um, and to really let the workers take the lead, let the workers um, not just be the kind of boots on the ground, but actually making the decisions, uh, driving the campaign forward, um, and obviously, we saw that at the ALU on Staten Island. We've seen other instances of this in kind of, um, you know, less formal campaigns. We had, you know, um, Google workers walk out in 2018 over the company's handling of sexual harassment. We saw um, teacher walkouts in 2018, 2019 that were really um, rank and file led. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I think even the Starbucks campaign that's now um, unionized 
I, I believe it's 18 of 19, um, uh, has, has won 18 of 19 elections at that company. Um, even though there's a, a union in charge, uh, Workers United, which is actually an affiliate of SEIU, um, the, the union has been pretty hands off. The worker committees at the different stores really take the lead in making the decisions about whether to have an election, when to have an election, uh, reaching out to the media. So that's, I think, uh, a kind of uh, you know, a campaign where there's a, a more traditional unit involved and they're actually trying to win elections, but it, it tends to be a bit more worker led. And I think there's you know, this real debate within the labor movement now about how much um, one versus the other should should take precedence. Uh, in a recent piece I did, I talked to Mark Dimenstein, who's the uh, the president of the Postal Workers Union, who have a real interest in organizing at Amazon. And and his message was, look, we, we need to get out of the way. We need to let these workers run with it, but we have to support them too. They're really going to need resources. Uh, they're going to need legal talent. Um, they're going to need, you know, a variety of ways that we can support them to make this victory stick. But he was of the view that, you know, traditional labor does need to take a bit of a step back, um, provide some help and some reinforcements, but let the workers lead it. Um, and so that's, that is kind of the debate that's playing out, I think, in the aftermath. Kim Kelly, do you think traditional labor also needs to change in some ways? Like, do you think there are lessons for this about things that they are actually potentially getting wrong? I mean, it, the proof is in the pudding, right? <laughs> a lot of people thought that this ALU effort would not work because they didn't follow these traditional playbooks. They didn't follow the rules. And obviously they came out of that with egg on their face. I think that the movement needs to be listening to workers more, listening specifically to workers who are more marginalized, who are more vulnerable, who have perhaps previously been seen as unorganizable. That's a long running theme throughout the movement throughout the centuries. I get into that a lot in my book, but I think the fact that people, some people seem to be surprised that a union leader like Chris Smalls, who is very charismatic, who is well-loved by his coworkers, who doesn't fit this traditional suit and tie white guy leader image. Like he's been so successful. People connect with him and to it, Derek Palmer and his coworkers, the people on the organizing committee, there's a reason for that. And I think that people in charge in labor spaces need to be paying very close attention to what the ALU got right and who they helped the most. Yeah, I'm so struck by this word unorganizable. What does that mean? I think you're touching on it with your description of Chris Smalls, but just so curious for you to explain that more. Right. Throughout U.S. history, there have been certain groups of people, groups of workers that have been kind of written off by the, the powers that be in the organized labor movement as impossible to organize. For a long time, it was women and then it was black workers, then Spanish speaking Latino workers. And over this over the years, as you know, as different industries developed, it was fast food. It was retail. There's for some reason, there's always some group of workers that we just quote unquote, can't organize. It's just too hard. And there are so many historical precedents for those exact workers hearing that, seeing that and saying, okay, well, we'll just do it ourselves. I mean, it makes you think of back in 1866, the washerwomen of Jackson, Mississippi, one year after emancipation, formed the state's first labor organization just by demanding higher wages for their work. I think about Dorothy Lee Bolden in the 1960s in Atlanta, who founded the National Domestic Workers Union of America and organized in a very similar way to the way that Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer and the other ALU organizers did. She rode the bus. She talked to people she knew. She was a domestic worker, so she had those connections. She knew that struggle. And that's how she built this organization that I think at its peak had about 10,000 members. 
who were almost entirely Black women, who was very focused on winning fair wages and professionalizing household work and on securing voting rights. You know, to be a member of that organization, you had to show up with a dollar and a voter registration card. You know, even going back to what, oh, <laughs> one thing that I think about a lot when I think about Chris Smalls and his, his role as a leader is about a hundred years ago, another working class radical black man named Ben Fletcher, who was a member of the IWW, Industrial Works of the World, he built a working class multiracial solidarity focused union on the Philadelphia waterfront. And he was arrested, he was threatened. He dealt with so many of the things that these organizers have dealt with today because of who they are and what they represent. And they won too. I mean, we've been here before and it seems like history is repeating in a very inspiring kind of way. And again, Kim Kelly's forthcoming book is Fight Like Hell, The Untold Story of American Labor. Miriam in San Francisco is on the line. Thanks for calling, Miriam. What's on your mind? Hi. Hi. Good morning. Yes, um, I think in in line with 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 the comment that just was uh, said, I I was really struck by how Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer were were constantly underestimated, not only fired in the middle of the pandemic, but but just um, no one expected them to win. And that really fueled, I think, uh, determination. It shouldn't be that way. But I was really struck with interviews and things that I've seen and heard where Chris Mall says that he has always been a leader. His father is incarcerated. His mother was a, a, a union member herself. And no one ever expected him to be able to, to, to do it. And that's a big part of, I think, the contrast between someone being, um, you know, just consistently underestimated while Bezos is jetting off to space in a cowboy hat, it was it was a perfect combination, and I well, was really, really struck by his leadership, and not just that he did the unionizing, but that he kept believing that he could, even though he was undercut at every turn. Well, Miriam, thanks. Appreciate um, appreciate you saying that and sharing your own response to to Chris Smalls. I want to bring into the conversation now Tia Orr, Executive Director of SEIU California. Tia Orr, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So give me your reaction to the success of the Amazon Labor Union. I know that you had tweeted out that it was really exciting and that you were fired up. Oh, yeah. I think uh, to to the point of of Kim's book, like ready to fight like hell, right? And I think (laughs) The points that Kim and, and No made are are just spot on. I know that I was in this inspired by the work of Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer, um, but more importantly, I think workers across the nation are inspired, right? Starbucks workers and airport workers and nursing home workers, um, workers across the nation, I think are fired up. And I think even prior, right, to to Chris Smalls and, and the amazing work that they're they're doing, you know, workers are in a moment where they're fed up. Right. And they're ready to stand on the front lines in the way that they have done in our history um, and really make a demand to get better treatment, to be protected, to get paid and respected on the job. And so it's inspiring um, by all means. It's a it's a BFD, as I would describe it without saying the the bad (laughs) word I shouldn't say on air. (laughs) Um, You also described it as creative, which I think is interesting. I'm wondering if you feel like there are things that SEIU big Long-time labor unions can learn from what they did or be reminded of, maybe. 
You know, I, I think that Noam alluded to this um, as I was listening in, you know, it really speaks to the power of having a worker led movement. And I think in all of the different strategies, including what we're doing on, on fast food with, with AB257 here in California, um, in the work that we're doing, you know, in Amazon and, and Starbucks workers, as well as the work that happened with grocery stores in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. you have to have a playbook with multiple strategies to be able to take on the corporate power that we know is aimed at stopping workers from this type of organizing. I think close to $300 million is spent a year on union busting activities to stop unions from organizing, probably even different to what was done even in our history. Um, but yes, it's gonna take tactics and creativity and strategies um, that ultimately I think end with us hopefully banding together to take on the corporate power that we know will do anything to stop us from bringing workers together. So are you and your affiliates, other big unions, are you talking about how to work with these independent unions or how to bring them into the fold? You, you, you know, I think I think we're all being led with the same principle. You know, workers standing on the front lines and speaking to their power and making demands on what they need, regardless, right, independent sectoral bargaining, all the different strategies, it's going to require us to come together to do a number of things, not only fight together and make sure that we're resourced to take on the corporate power, we also have to hold our elected officials um, accountable to make sure that they restructure and change the laws that we know are intentionally and systemically have been stacked against black and brown workers specifically, women specifically, our immigrant brothers and sisters specifically, in order to change the rules so that what Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer, Starbucks workers and fast food workers, so what they're doing actually results in a first contract where they can see the benefits mm -hmm. of their labor and the fight that they put forward, which is another fight that we have to band together to ensure that we can accomplish. Yeah. Do you think there is some new momentum or, or maybe that we're even in a new, more labor friendly climate right now that will push things like AB 257, the Fast Recovery Act over the finish line? I, I do. I think that we're in a moment similar to what we've seen um, in the movement of brothers and sisters hitting the streets and demanding um, racial justice demanding economic justice. I think um, the nation and workers, um, our, our brothers and sisters are fed up and they're ready to step to the front lines and make demands and hold folks accountable um, with, with every bit of passion and power that they have. And yes, that's gonna require us to be united uh, to be able to push back again against those corporate powers and laws that are stacked against us. Well, Tia Orr, really appreciate you coming on to talk with us. Um, any final thoughts before I let you go? No, I, I thank you for the time. And just, you know, as I stated, AB257, a bill in California is going to be instrumental in taking on an industry that is bifurcated in a lot of ways, a different type of strategy to be able to respond to that fast food sector. Um, just another approach and another strategy um, that goes along together with what we're doing on Amazon, Starbucks and other areas to organize workers and bring them power. Tia Orr, Executive Director of SEIU California. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Also with us, Kim Kelly, a journalist and author, and Noam Scheiber, a reporter for the New York Times. We're talking about the Amazon labor union victory earlier this month in New York and, and what its independent approach could mean for the future of labor organizing in the U.S. 866-733-6786, the number if you want to call in and join the conversation. And Noah in Richmond is on the line. Hi, Noah. Hello. Yes, uh, I am a former labor organizer with the UAW 2865, the union that organizes graduate student teaching assistants in the state of California. 
And folks may remember a couple of years ago a significant corruption scandal that struck the national organization of the UAW. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to share my experience as a local organizer, um, hearing from our national, uh, dealing with one of the representatives coming to our campus. You know, I hear a lot of people saying that uh, businesses who pr- try to prevent unions from coming in will try to third party the union, say that the union is a third party that isn't really representing the workers. Well, I fear that what happens when unions get too large in their national structure is they really can become like these third parties, that our locals have really had a uh, tough time getting across uh, what we were saying to our national. Uh, we felt that they were just kind of giving us lip service and making it seem like they were listening without really committing to change. And so I just want to say I'm so impressed and inspired by the Amazon workers doing this all themselves, you know, not even reaching out for uh, the help that a large national organization could have provided them. Because I think that, um, you know, as other uh, callers have said, some of the old labor organizing tactics simply don't work in the new era. And we really need to get back to the roots of labor organizing, which is worker power, workers working together to organize themselves because they're the ones who understand the conditions in their workplace better than anybody. And if national organizations aren't on the same page with that, then they are going to be left behind. So I hope the UAW, I hope RWDSU, I hope other national unions, you know, hear this call, see what's happening with the Amazon Labor Union, and get their act together to support their locals because their locals know how to lead. Thank you. Mm. Well, uh, this listener Stephen writes in, Part of the reason for the decline of unions over the past few decades can be laid at the feet of union management and the many stories of corruption, criminal activity, violence, and the defense of incompetent workers and other headline-grabbing activities. What evidence is there that contemporary national leaders of unions have learned from this history that will restore the reputation of unions, such as transparency, reasonable efforts to work with management when worker misdeeds should lead to termination, flexibility in work assignments, and equitable but not extravagant compensation for union leaders? Stephen raises a lot of questions there that were just coming up on a break, Kim Kelly. Um, but if you have some thoughts on what is being raised here in terms of the reputation of labor and, and how it came to be on the negative side of things. I don't think anybody who is involved in labor uh, is unaware of those problems and those those issues and those, I mean, terrible, terrible decisions that a lot of people in power have made. And I, But I think a lot of people are trying to make things better. I think that people recognize that, at the very least the workers and the rank and file recognize that, and that's the most important thing. I think about how um, the Teamsters, who have a very long and colorful history, will say. <laughs> they, um, the rank and file led this effort, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, that basically the new, it, it, we're at a point where their new president, Sean O'Brien, who swept in as a reform candidate, just met with Chris Smalls in D.C. That is important. That is That shows that some people, at the very least, are paying attention and looking towards the future. Mm. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Amazon labor union victory earlier this month in New York City and what its independent approach could mean for the future of labor organizing in the U.S. with Kim Kelly, author of the book Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, Noam Scheiber, a reporter for The New York Times. And of course, you, our listeners, please share your reactions to the first Amazon labor union uh, victory in the company's history. And if you want your thoughts or experiences with labor unions and whether your opinion of them is changing or has changed recently, 866-733-6786 is the number, 866-733-6786. Twitter or Facebook or Instagram are ways to reach us online. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org. Noam Scheiber, I also just want to hear your thoughts on this question of the reputation and image of labor unions. Do you think it's undergoing a brand renewal or or needs to uh, as a part of its as a part of its ability to say maybe harness um, the energy and momentum that this Amazon labor union seems to have generated. Um, it, it, it's a really good question. Um, I you know have covered union elections where the reputation of the national or the international union was a real problem. I remember covering the union campaign at a big Nissan factory in Mississippi in 2017. That was right at the time when the kind of early shoes in the UAW scandal were dropping a big corruption scandal there. And I I can assure you that that was not helpful to their organizing efforts. I'm not sure that they would have won that campaign either way, but, um, but the corruption allegations, which turned out to be valid, um, were were definitely unhelpful. So um, I guess my feeling in covering these elections and covering organizing campaigns over the years is I think the reputation of the union can be a negative. I'm not sure that um, it's ever an affirmative, you know, if you, if you have, um, you know, an organization that's doing things right, um, you know, I think sort of maybe behind closed doors, um, you know, worker to worker, um, you know, some existing members can assure prospective members that this is a really good union that looks out for the interests. But my experience has generally been that workers don't really think about institutions, you know, um, they don't think about the international, they don't think about, they certainly don't think about who the president is of an international union or even the president of a local. Um, They just want to know that um, this is a credible organization. If we unionize, they'll get our backs. Um, They'll help us negotiate a contract. Um, They won't undercut us. Uh, They won't step on, you know, um, actions that we plan. Um, they, you know, and they certainly won't embarrass us with corruption. So I think it, it can be a real negative. Uh, I, I haven't seen many instances where it's a positive, you know, where the workers go around and say, we're, you know, we're hoping to unionize with X union and everyone gets very excited because X union has such a great reputation. You know, I think um, that to the extent that the reputation of, of outsiders matters, I think it's just generally a sense that, you know, unions kind of generically are a good thing or that power for workers is generically a good thing and that organizing is generically a good thing. But I, I, I just haven't seen many instances of like a specific union um, kind of mattering in any way other than a potentially negative way because the employer is able to say, well, these guys are just out to steal your money. 
Let me go to caller Rachel in Rodeo. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Go right ahead. Thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, as I was explaining to the person who spoke to me, um, I was the vice president statewide of the Community College um, Community College Association, which is affiliated with the California Teachers Association and the National Education Association. And one of my responsibility was membership. I don't know how familiar you are with the CTA NEA model, mm. but the leadership is um, not paid. We are elected by our members. Um, from I was I was a counselor at, at Chabot College, which is a community college in Hayward, and um, I was got what they call release time, and so the district paid in the sense for my salary. But the union did not pay for my salary. So, like I said, one of my responsibility was to um, uh, basically work with membership. And one thing that I always told the members was, the union is you. And I think that's what a lot of times people don't understand, that the union is them. And that if they need to make sure that their leadership is held accountable. Um, and I know that's very hard because the other person said about, you know, people don't think about us and stuff like that. Right. They don't always look at the membership and stuff. But at, at, at our organization, it was the chapters at the local um, community colleges. And basically, they represented districts. So some districts have like L.A. has many, many of them. And, and basically, in the community college um, system, there is the AFT, the CTA, NEA and the um, in what they call independent um, unions, what I call an oxymoron. But, um, and so, you know, I believe that, you know, members need to be more active because to me, it's, you know, they are the union. We represent them. And so sometimes that can be very frustrating for leadership because, you know, they kind of expect us to do things, but yet don't want to become involved in the union. And I, I feel that that is something that union members need to understand about their responsibility as union members. Well, Rachel, thanks. Thanks for sharing your side of the experience. Let me read a couple of comments. Um, Laura writes, I'm thrilled by the example of these Amazon workers, but I do think unions need to change. Over the past five decades, traditional unions have seemed to cling to outmoded forms of organizing that strike me as relentlessly patriarchal, independent organizing, including new thinking about power for women, may be the key to victory. Tex writes, I work at Amazon, wrestling pallets on and off trucks and conveyors. I just got off a shift a few hours ago. Something missing from the news is that JFK 8 is infamous for issues at the site. Amazon probably overreacted, and that likely galvanized the workers there. A lot of the horror stories about Amazon come from JFK 8. Many sites don't unionize. Many sites don't have the site issues JFK 8 has. I don't think the average Amazonian has Amazonian has the ambition to unionize. And I doubt many would even bother to fill out a ballot. You guys are likely making more of this than there is. Well, Kim Kelly, let me get your reaction to that quickly, if you feel like this is actually the exception more than the rule. Well, I certainly would not want to invalidate a worker's experience. And hopefully things are going well for them in the place that they work. But I believe it just came out yesterday, uh, Chris Smalls was saying that he had heard from workers in about 100 other Amazon facilities who had reached out and asked how to organize, how to get involved. And uh, that seems fairly significant to me. <laughs> so uh, perhaps this, this person's personal um, views on unions, which are, you know, you're entitled to those, might not be the whole story. Because even if you are 
even if you like your job, even if you like your boss, even if you're being paid decent, that could all disappear in a moment if you don't have a union contract. That could all go up in smoke if you don't have the kind of collective worker power that organizing and joining a union brings, right? Like if you like your job, you should want to make it better and make it more sustainable for the people that come in after you. That's the promise of unions, right? Yeah. Raising up everybody just because you're okay doesn't mean that everyone else is. That said, getting to a contract is the next big step. And as we're learning or already know, if you're in labor, that is a really long and often difficult fight. Can you give us a sense of the long road ahead, Kim Kelly, and what your thoughts are on this group's ability to 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 get a contract? I mean, they've won this first battle very decisively, but like you said, there is a long road ahead. Contract negotiations are where, you know, workers can face a lot of roadblocks. Amazon has a lot of money and a lot of legal power and a lot of incentive to try and block whatever these workers try to do. And I mean, they've used these legal means before to mess with elections in, in Bessemer and pull in local officials to do what they want. And it, it's a it's a little bit of a scary time. But I mean, these folks have gotten this far and they're out there making alliances and making connections with more established labor unions that can offer support and resources if mm. they're desired. I mean, it's it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. It's probably not going to be quick, but. I mean, they got this far without people believing in them. Like, what's to stop them from getting a great contract and setting that precedent, too, you know? Yeah, Noam Shiber, what could you tell us about the challenges that you see ahead for our Amazon labor union? And also what Kim's talking about in terms of, you know, maybe this is the point where traditional labor and this this sort of new labor, <laughs> I, I don't know if I like a better way of describing it, but can come together just in terms of the institutional support that big labor unions, existing labor unions can provide? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. As Kim says, this this is, and, and, and you suggested, this is typically a, a really um, difficult phase. Um, everyone focuses on the kind of emotional uh, release of winning an election, but these first contracts typically take a few years. And, you know, there's all kinds of false starts and, um, you know, recriminations and, and you know, uh, accusations back and forth. So that's just par for the course you know, even in a, in a kind of typical uh, anonymous employer to say nothing of one of the most well-known and, and prominent employers on the planet. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a real struggle. And before um, they can even sit down and negotiate, there's, there's going to be some litigation about the outcome. Um, Amazon is filing objections to the action saying that it was improperly conducted by the NLRB and that the Amazon labor union um, misbehaved. It, um, it engaged in what's known as polling, you know, asking workers how they're going to vote and tracking how workers are going to vote and that it coerced employees. Um, the union denies that and says that they have no coercive power. They're not, even, you know, they're just other employees. Um, so that's got to play out in the next several months, potentially, too. So, yeah, it is it is a long road. I do think this is a moment where um, some of the infrastructure from traditional unions can help. Um, certainly legal talent would be helpful. Um, certainly, um, you know, just advice about how the, the kind of ebbs and flows of these contract negotiations strategies, um, you know, for negotiating everything from kind of order of operations, you know, what you want to start with and what you want to move on to. Um, there are lots of people who've negotiated contracts over the years and have done that successfully. And I think the ALU would, would benefit from their insight. Um, you know, I, I think just a, a couple other thoughts on this. I think one is, um, you know, while this was clearly, a, you know, a hugely independent effort 
there were traditional unions that were lending support even in during the election. Communications Workers of America lent the Amazon labor union folks their text messaging platform that allowed them to, you know, message coworkers, you know, hundreds or thousands at a time. Um, they got office space from other unions. They had lawyers that were working with them pro bono. So it was already uh, kind of a cause within traditional unions and a lot of unions sent resources uh, personnel um, that, that were helpful to them. So I think the question is, how do you kind of ramp that up without undermining, you know, the kind of um, the organic energy that they've created there? Yeah, you raise this really interesting question in your piece about whether traditional unions, while ramping up their contributions, you write, to these efforts, including opposition research, public relations strategies, will be able to resist the temptation to seize control from the workers who fueled them. That's a really interesting sentence, Noam Scheiber. Um, what's your answer? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think it's a real open question. I think the bottom line, you know, I was talking to a, an organizer uh, last week who put it really, um, really succinctly for me. He said, you know, unions are strange beasts. They're, they're not uh, for-profit institutions. So they're not sort of um, kind of monomaniacally focused on the bottom line. On the other hand, they're not charities either, right? <laughs> they're, um, it, so they, they have to sort of expand membership over time. They're responsible to their membership and they're responsible to their boards for getting some return on investment. Um, and so it is an interesting question. I mean, I think in the early days after the ALU victory, there is this real sense of possibility. There's this sense of solidarity. I think you're going to hear a lot of people um, like, you know, Mark Dimenstein of the Postal Workers, who I mentioned earlier, say, like, we're, we're, we're just going to give them resources, no, no strings attached, because this is, you know, this is existential for us. This is the biggest fight in the labor movement at the moment. Um, but, you know, you do wonder if over time, if unions start sending resources to the ALU and um, spending money. Um, at some point, do the members, do, you know, the rivals of the existing leadership start to say, hey, you know, we've been sending this money um, to the ALU. They're, you know, getting bogged down there. What's in it for us? You know, why are we spending this money with no return? So I think that's just natural in an institution like that, which, you know, as that organizer told me, is not for profit, but not a charity either. And, you know, it's just, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out over time. I think one other question about bargain, bargaining and contract that has arisen recently, and I think it's a fascinating one, um, and the Starbucks campaign has really elevated is, you know, should you sort of um, bring all hands on deck and all resources to bear on trying to negotiate this first contract? I think that's been the traditional thinking in the labor movement is consolidate the win, get that first contract and move from there. Or should you try to get other union wins, win other elections at the same time? And I think the Starbucks campaign has shown maybe the strategic advantages of the latter. Um, they're clearly mm -hmm. trying to negotiate that first contract in Buffalo, but at the same time, they've, they've you know, filed dozens, I think they're now around 200 um, filings for elections across the country. And that has had the advantage for them of spreading the company a little thinner, you know, not allowing it to concentrate all its opposition on blocking or watering down a contract in Buffalo, but having to fight, you know, potentially hundreds of uh, fronts in this broader battle. And so I think that's a real question um, of whether if there were to be other elections and and workers were to win other elections at other Amazon facilities, whether it might actually be easier by sort of diverting the focus from this one high profile situation. We're talking with Noam Scheiber of the New York Times and journalist and author Kim Kelly, and you're listening to Forum. 
I'm Mina Kim. Well, Daniel writes, I work for Amazon as a shopper at a market in the Bay Area. I tried organizing when COVID started. Not many were interested. Possible reasons that California labor law and local minimum wage laws provide enough to keep most relatively satisfied. That is, we're not Florida or Alabama. Flex workers are by definition not invested in the job. Most employees are fly by night. I'm not an organizer, just one guy with average personal skills. I'd like to hear if my experience is reflective of California in general. And then Michael tweets, now that even Michigan, home of the famous CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, strike in the late 30s, has become a right-to-work state, I think labor unions' days are done. And Peter tweets, My 90-year-old father was a teacher's union organizer starting in the 60s. He has watched as unions have weakened since then. It's encouraging to see this resurgence of union strength. Ah, So three sort of different ideas here. Daniel saying California, the, the drive may be a little less sort of charged because some of the labor issues are not as acute as, say, in other states. Michael saying labor unions days are done. Peter saying that he's seeing a resurgence. Which is it, you think, <laughs> Kelly? <laughs> Gosh, I mean, I just spent the past year going through about 300 years of working class <laughs> and labor history in this country. And the one thing I can say from that perspective is, like, you're all sort of right in a way um, in, in different contexts. I mean, there it's always been a, 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 a like an up and down, right? Like, sometimes the workers are seem like we're really getting towards achieving the collective power we really need to force change this country. And we get cut off at the knees because a new president or a new administration or a new sort of situation appears and that harms the labor movement, knocks us back on our heels. And then we get back up and we do it again. And then we get knocked back down. Like, so I think if you look at it and it's like a very, very long story, right? Like it's, we're all trying to get towards a better world. We're all trying to win we're all trying to make leave things a little bit better than they were when we showed up and obviously like if we had better labor laws we had more friendly labor friendly politicians if we had a political class that had the will to actually be useful when it comes to passing legislation that aids the working class and the poor actually taking right to work laws out (laughs) out to pasture actually showing up for the people who make the world turn that would be nice, but that's a difficult prospect in this country, right? So right now, the workers, the workers who are waking up and paying attention and seeing these efforts spread and seeing ways that they can apply that to their own situations, their own lives, that gives me hope. And I think it should give everyone else hope, too. You know, we, we've been knocked down before, but we had never given up. Kim Kelly, thanks so much. And Noam Scheiber, thanks to you as well. And thanks to our listeners for sharing their thoughts on the labor movement after Amazon Labor Union's victory. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.